when I when I uh, when I substitute tat, tat when I substitute taught kindergarten a couple of times when I was in El Centro, I did my friend a favor and I would go and teach her teach her kindergarten class. Basically, I was babysitting. But one of the things that we did is that when we were learning how to count, when they were learning basic math, um, they had little blocks in their hands and they were using them to kind of help them. And we all know that sometimes that helps, right? So this morning, the building blocks we're going to be using are these red books that are found in the pews in front of you. So if you didn't bring a Bible, I encourage you to use one of these. Even if you brought your own Bible, I'm going to be reading from the red Bible this morning. And, um, and so maybe you want to follow along with me on that one. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that we can be here this morning. Uh, We are thankful that we have the freedom to gather together and to worship you and to sing songs and to spend time with each other in public. We're thankful for those freedoms. And so now, Lord, as we open up Scripture, we pray that um, where maybe there is one or two of us here who would rather be somewhere else, uh, where maybe there is someone here who came against their will, Or maybe there is someone here who has to leave right away because there's something that has to get done. God, I pray that for the next few moments you would just still our hearts and our minds and that you would open our eyes to a new reality. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to begin with the question. Has anyone ever criticized your family? Has your family ever been criticized? Come on. Yes or no? Do you like when your family gets criticized? Generally, you don't, right? And so what happens when somebody says something bad, right? When somebody talks smack about your family, you kind of are like, whoa, wait a minute. I know my family's not perfect. I know we're probably pretty dysfunctional. But you can't say that about my family, right? We can say it about our family. We can say, man, our family's the worst family. Our kids are horrible. My parents are this. My sisters and brothers are this way. We could say whatever we want to about our family because it's our family. But the moment that an outsider says something about your family, then we're going to have words. Isn't that correct? So this week, um, probably the most sacred task that I have is that in the morning I wake up um, at a time that I didn't have to wake up before, to prepare some toast or some sort of edible food for the kids to eat as they're walking out of the house. And then I have to go and turn the car on and then drive the kids approximately uh, 0.1 miles to school so they can get there on semi-time. So my most sacred task is to get these three children ready for school, okay? So one of the things that, and this is just a side story, get to know me story. As a kid growing up, one of my tasks was to get, um, after getting ready for school, I would go and turn my mom's car on so that the car would warm up. How many of you have ever had to do that, right? I was raised in a family where we had to warm our cars up because otherwise they're not going to last very long. So for some reason, I, uh, I have taken to that. Even when I bought a brand new car, I was out there warming my car up because I didn't want it to go bad, okay? I've been told that that doesn't really do anything, but I still do it. So that's one of the ways I hurry my kids up. I'm like, I'm going to be in the car. I open the garage door. I turn the car on, um, and I'm waiting. And so this this week, I believe it was Thursday, um, I turned on the radio, and um, I don't get satellite signal when I'm in the garage because it's obstructed. So I turned it on, and I was just looking for something, and I came across a Christian radio station. Now, it's not the Seventh-day Adventist one. It's not KSGN. It was a different 
Christian, and it's not Air One, but it was a different Christian radio station that plays sermons on there a lot, right? So I'm sitting there waiting for the kids to come out. So I pop, you know, I, I turn it on, and I started listening to it. And I don't remember what Bible verse the preacher was using, but it, it was something, something, something. And then it said something like this. He says, something, 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 believe in Jesus, and, and this is what he, almost word for word, because I didn't memorize I should have wrote it down. He was reading the scriptures, believe in Jesus, and the way that some preachers have that we like to be funny where we insert something that's not there. And this is what he says. Believe in Jesus and read the book dictated by the angel Moroni to, jo- to Joseph Smith. Is that his name? To Joseph Smith and do everything the book of Mormon says. And I was like, dang, like this guy's going after Mormons pretty hard. I'm like, it's like eight o'clock in the morning, you know, relax a little. But it was recorded. But that's what he says. And I'm just like, come on. Preach Jesus. You don't have to be bashing other people. Then he says, believe in Jesus. So he has another next little quip. Believe in Jesus and put all of the importance of your faith on Saturday as the seventh day Sabbath of the Bible, like the seventh day Adventists do. And I was like, whoa. Come on now. I didn't even know who the preacher was, but I was like, you can't say that about us. Because A, we don't do that. Sure, it's important to us. Some people may do that, but as a church, we don't, we don't put all of our importance on Jesus. We put our importance on the Jesus of the Sabbath. But that really rubbed me the wrong way. And I thought, well, yeah, I got upset. That's, this is my family. I can criticize the Seventh-day Adventist church, but he can't because he's not a part of it. Isn't that how it is? I'm a part of it. I have dedicated my life to serve God through the local Seventh-day Adventist church. That's my calling. That's my purpose. That's what I'm doing. So if I have a criticism, I can do that because I'm also trying to be a part of the solution. But this guy is just bashing us. Then he went on, and I know this is a long introduction, but we got time this morning. Then he went on, and he said, believe in Jesus. So he has a third one. Believe in, and I knew where this one was going. Believe in Jesus. And go knocking door to door and hand out watchtower literature. Like the Jehovah's Witnesses do. And I'm like, man, I already don't like this guy. Because he has to, in order for him to preach Jesus, he has to bash other, other faiths. That's not cool. What bothered me also is like, he, you know, I, I all of a sudden was like, not this didn't bother me, but all of a sudden I was like, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are my brothers and sisters. Like, we're alienated. But we believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. And so what what this did to me, and I think what God was kind of working on me with this is, why do people think that the most important thing of our faith is the Sabbath? It shouldn't be. Now, don't get me wrong. Sabbath is important as can be, but that cannot be the most important thing. And I think what has happened is people have begun to see the Seventh-day Adventist church very simply as the church that keeps Sabbath so holy that we've lost sight of everything else. Now, I have a problem with that, and I'm sure you have a problem with that too, because if we, if we really don't see things that way. Jesus is more important. But the reason I think that sometimes we lose sight of Jesus is because we put more of an emphasis on sin and devil and how bad everything is. 
Let me give you another story, okay? It's another story, segue. When I was in elementary school, I was probably 10 years old, and I believe when you're in sixth grade or maybe fifth grade, I think when you're in fifth grade, they allow you to volunteer to work in the school cafeteria. So part of the perks of this are that you get to get out half an hour before lunch. Good perk when you're a little kid. And the other perk is once all of the lunches have been distributed, the people who make the lunches always have extra and they used to they used to give and I, I used to get these lunches. They used to give away these rectangle shaped pizzas that were delicious. Better than anything I've tasted to date. I know it's school lunch, I'm crazy, but I like cafeteria food. Okay? Well on doing further inquiry, I asked myself, as I always do, what makes this slice of pizza so good? And so I was looking at it because it has the bread, it has the cheese, it has good tomato sauce, whatever they use. And then it has these other little squares of, of stuff, and I don't know what that is. Don't ask, don't tell. So I ate, I was 10 years old, I was, ate it. And then some, I don't know what, I don't know how this conversation came, it ends up being a meat that as Adventists we don't eat. But it was a square. I didn't know. Meat comes in different forms, not in little bite-sized squares. And on further inquiry, the cafeteria lady told me that it, in, in fact, was sausage, pork, whatever. I don't know. Processed. So how much could it really be, right? Not bad. So at 10 years old, I struggled with should I eat this pizza again? My parents aren't here. Nobody knows me. I mean, nobody knows really what Seventh-day Adventists believe in this school. They're not. Who cares? I'm going to eat it. No one's going to see it. I know God sees it. I'm willing to risk it because this tastes so good. <laughs> but every time they served pizza, I wrestled, and there was just this huge guilt. And I remember thinking to myself, if you eat it, you're going to feel guilty. If you eat it, you're not going to heaven. If you eat this food... You're a bad Seventh-day Adventist, and I was raised to be a good Seventh-day Adventist, right? That's why we were at church all day on Saturday, and that's why my parents would never let me get out of my church clothes on Sabbath until sundown. You guys are laughing because you know you've been there. And I had this huge guilt laying on my 10-year-old soul that I would not go to heaven. And what didn't help is that preachers would stand up and say, if you want to go to heaven, you have to do all of these things. You should do this and should do this, and you shouldn't do this and should do this. And, and at that age, I was like, okay, I'm trying the hardest that I can, but I can't do it all. And so up until the age that I was probably 17 years old, that's how I lived my life. And to be completely honest with you, I still, to some extent, live my life that way. Because I don't know how to get away from the fact that I have to do things a certain way, because that's what was built into me from the very beginning. You know, we're programmed to ask this question. Okay, we go to school and we're taught that our job is to save people's souls, right? Which... There's a whole conversation we can get into about that at another time, maybe on a Friday night, and we talk about souls and, and how uh, Greek philosophy has really infiltrated the way you and I as church members see the world, where really it should be a Hebraic worldview. Again, we can talk about this at greater length at another time. But we've been taught, and if I asked you this this morning, if Jesus came today right now, where would you spend eternity? Would you spend it in heaven or would you spend it in hell? And that's pretty much the question we've been trained to ask. 
And then the question, and then what we do is then we go on, and if somebody says, well, I don't know, then some, you'll say, well, have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen anything? Okay. Have you ever envied something someone has? Have you ever done your own pleasure on, on Saturday or on Sabbath? Have you ever disrespected your parents? We're, we're trained to ask those questions, and then somebody, well, what's the answer to all those questions? Well, yeah. Well, and then they say this, by your own admission, you are a sinner and in need of salvation. Well, after you've made somebody feel guilty for being a sinner, do they really want to turn to Jesus and say, I want to get rid of all this? Or are they just kind of like, this is especially if it's somebody that's not a Christian who didn't grow up with this. They're kind of like, well, I, I don't know. And when you make somebody feel guilty, is it easy to lose the guilt? Well, have you ever felt guilty and then you prayed and you're just like, woof, no more guilt. I don't feel it. Have you ever done that before? And yet that's how we're trained because for many people, we use the Bible verse found in the book of Romans. And I want to show this to you. I'm passionate about this because this, this is important. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to tell you what page it's on. Page 800. I'm rather, chapter 6, I'm sorry. Romans chapter 6. 799, verse 23. When we talk about the gospel, when we talk about how Jesus saves us, instead of talking about how wonderful and how amazing Jesus is, oftentimes I hear people use this verse, verse um, 23, that says this. After you've shown somebody that they're a sinner, then they use this, for the wages of sin is death. Is that good news to anybody? And what happens is then you go and you use other Bible verses, but what we forget is that, yeah, it says the wages of sin is death, but, and this is a huge but, the gift of God is the eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. But we seem to always start the story of our faith in the wrong place. The truth is, we look at the story starting in the book of Genesis chapter 3. Now, can we just look at that for a second? I have two Bible verses I want to look at. I'm borrowing this from a preacher I heard. He did a, a really good job, and so I thought, you know what? I never thought about it that way, so I'm borrowing it. In Genesis chapter 3, that's page 2. Genesis chapter 3, verse 2 and 4. The story is that God, he makes this garden, right? This is what the story tells us, that there's a garden that is made with everything that you could possibly want. And all he tells the only two living people is just don't eat from one tree. And so now this is a story that's taking place between one of these people, Eve, with a serpent. And it begins in verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. And then the serpent says, you surely will, or you will not surely die. And we know that the story will continue to go on, and if we look at verse 21 of the same chapter, they ate of the fruit, both Adam and Eve, and now I've heard some people make the case... <laughs> That men are superior to women because women ate, it, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and messed it up for all humanity. I've heard people say that. The problem is, 
if you read the Bible and you look at it just afterwards, it says that Adam was there with her. So he didn't stop her. Okay, so we're equally to blame for this. But in verse 21, they hid themselves because they were afraid because God, they hear God coming in the, in the garden. They hear his footsteps. And the Bible says that Adam and Eve were afraid because they were naked. They had always been naked, but all of a sudden their eyes were open to this. And verse 21 um, says this. Well, after, after God says, why did you do this? Verse 21 says this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. The reason that the, he, that the Bible writers use the word, they, their eyes were open and they realized they were naked, what the Bible writer, what everybody would have understood is that nakedness means that they are shamed, that they have shame, or that they are guilty about something. They are guilty. There's this heaviness. And Adam and Eve, they were ashamed of what they had done, so they hid in the bushes to cover their shame. Have we ever done that? And, but, but, the, but the gospel in this text is that God... He makes coverings for them. God could have easily killed them off and started over. But instead of God killing them off and starting over, what God does, and this is hugely theological, at the, this is the gospel in the very first book of the Bible, God covers their shame. In essence, what this is doing is God is forgiving them for their trespass. God is forgiving them for their sin. And it's not anything they've done. I mean, it's not, they didn't forgive themselves. It's what God does. And then two verses later, he says, he drove out the man and the woman to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword and turning, a a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. Is there consequence for our sins? Always. Always there's consequences for our sins. And this, this consequence was that they were put to the east of the Garden of Eden, or east of Eden, which is where you and I, in essence, live our lives, which is right outside of this garden that promises life. The garden where there is communion face-to-face with God, the garden that represents our connection to God. Now we are forced to live outside of that because somebody messed up. Here's the thing. This is a good story. The problem is that the Bible does not begin in Genesis chapter 3. And a lot of times as Christians, that's where we start. You're a sinner, so you need Jesus. But what if, what if we taught the beginning of the story to people? And we said that Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God. God takes chaos and makes something beautiful. What if we showed people that the way God always intended things to be was for things to be perfect and beautiful and good and everything was supposed to be right? But sometimes through our decision, sometimes through our naivety, our ignorance, sometimes through our selfishness, sometimes we get to Genesis 3 where we, we live out of sync and out of harmony with the way God wanted things to be, and as a result of of being put out of harmony with that, we are in need of somebody to make things better. But throughout the entire scripture, there is story and examples of how God continually covers our shame. 
even when we don't deserve it. There are some places where Jesus says, where God says in Jeremiah, you have forsaken the one true living God to all of these believers. He says, you have forsaken me. You have gone after other gods. You have gone after what you want, what I deserve in this life. He says, and in the process of wanting all that, you have forsaken me. You have put me to the dogs. You have put me to the trash. He says, but even so, I will still keep coming back to give you life. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody is unfaithful to me, I'm going to find it very difficult to love them the same way. Right? Very difficult. And yet we are unfaithful to God often, and God is still pursuing you because he wants to give you the best life For him, the best life is in big house, big car, lots of money. That's not what I mean. But for God, the best life is the one where you reacquire some of this essence of what Adam and Eve had with God at the garden, where there was this intimate connection. Because God believes that if you can connect to the vine, right? Jesus is the vine. It's the metaphor we use. If we connect to the one who who has the power to give life, life will be better. Doesn't mean it will be easier, It just simply means that what becomes important to you will be something better than what it was before. And so sometimes we begin the story in Genesis chapter 3, but we're not going to get anybody closer to Jesus that way. All that's going to do is make people feel guilty for eating sausage on their pizza at 10 years old. Some of you can't get over that, but that was 20-some years ago. Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life. If we look at another text in Romans chapter 8, going back to the the page about 800 or so. Romans chapter 8. What if when we tell people the story of creation, we tell them that this God who needs nothing creates us to live and to enjoy the world that he makes? And what if instead of beginning with you're a sinner, and you're going to die, what if we begin with verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life, meaning God's way of doing things, set me free from the law of sin and death. There is now no condemnation for those who believe and put their faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. You see, too many times we're focusing on so many other things that we forget that the death of Jesus on the cross accomplishes so much for you and me. You don't have to feel guilty anymore. Because from the very beginning, God starts the story wanting life to be awesome and perfect and great for us. We make decisions that take us out of sync with God. And God continually is trying time and time again to show you the promises of the best possible life. A life that is spent with him where you walk with him. Where your wife and your husband walk alongside you. Where you can teach your children about the love of God. And how he has made you to be who you are. And how he loves you no matter what. What if we continually pointed to the parts in the scripture where God says there is now no condemnation for anyone who believes in me? And the story 
ultimately ends in Revelation. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21. The story ends in Revelation 21, 22. It says this, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first, first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. That's one we can, you know, we'll have to ask other people, what does it mean no sea? I don't get it. Well, we'll figure it out later. But this is a way of saying the way things were, were sin and death and destruction and evil and injustice and, and trafficking of slaves. And so all that stuff that was bad is no longer, it's passing away. That's, that's what the Bible writers, when they say, um, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, that's all they're saying is that the world will be created new. Okay, you can't take this part literally because it doesn't make sense like that. And then, okay, verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Imagery, okay, imagery. We, as believers in Jesus, we are the bride and God is our husband. It's imagery. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And listen to this. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I am making everything new. Now, have you ever experienced life without crying, without mourning, or without loss? Have any of you ever experienced a life where you've never felt bad, sad, or cried? In the scriptures, where is the only time that there is no crying, no pain, no suffering? Where? At the beginning, where? In the Garden of Eden. The stories of the Bible are the stories of a God who will stop at nothing to bring you to himself so that he can give you real life. That is the story. The stories that we find are of people who are pushing and pulling away from God because they want to they want to just care about what they want. They're selfish. We all are selfish. Let's just face it. That's the way we are. But the struggle is that we wouldn't be selfish, but that we would give up those things and say, I just want to, I want to serve God and I want to serve others. I mean, it's natural. It's self-instinct, right? We, we have to take care of ourselves because no one else will. And so that's what I mean by we're selfish. We, we focus on ourselves. And then in the very end of the scriptures, the story ends in a place that's very much like the Garden of Eden, where there is no more pain, no more crying, no more suffering. I am not saying we're going back to the Garden of Eden. I'm saying that it's the reality where there is no more sin and no more destruction, where all the evil is destroyed and we can be face to face with God again. And then it says in verse 6, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son or daughter. And so we come to this text. So many times we think that the Bible is a code book for how we're supposed to live our life. The problem with seeing it that way is that we rob it of the inspiration. When we see it only as a code book for how we're supposed to do everything, we neglect the fact that this is first and foremost a story about God 
and who God is and what he is doing for us. The parts about where we learn how we're supposed to live our lives is in essence we learn from the mistakes of the people that have come before us. Now there are some places in the scriptures that are pretty specific. And those are good things. God only wants the best for you and for me. But don't get caught up on the what am I supposed to do Because when we get caught up only on what am I supposed to do, you're only going to feel guilty when you don't do it. And so I have maybe two more Bible verses to read. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Is this making sense, by the way? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. This is a Bible verse for the saints, for the Christians, for the religious people. Verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved. You are saved simply by grace. Through faith. And this not from yourselves. This is a gift of God. Not by works, not by the things you do, so that none of you can boast or brag about it. For we are God's worksmanship, created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance for us to do. You are saved by grace. Paul would later go on to say, this doesn't mean just keep sinning and live your life however you want to. No, because we clearly have seen that there are things in our lives that are destructive, that take us out of sync and out of harmony with God. Those things we call sin. So there are clearly things that are getting in between you and your relationship with God. Yeah? You know what those are. I know what they are for me. And the things that are getting in between my relationship with God and me, I have to learn to get rid of those things. And sometimes it's only the Holy Spirit that can help us get rid of some of those things. Can I, can I get a witness? <laughs> there are things that are putting you out of sync with God. And you have to learn to leave those behind and let those die. Because they're going to just keep getting in the way of the life that God is wanting for you and the, God, and the life that God has provided for you. Remember, we must begin the story in the beginning where God wants the very best. And we have to make sure that we end the story where God keeps true to his promises and does away with all the evil and bad and injustice in the world. And in the process, which you are living right now, God is continually covering your shame. That's what the death of Jesus on the cross represents, that he takes on the guilt of your sins, right? It's true, the wages of sin is death. But Jesus, if you allow him to, he takes the responsibility of your death and he takes that from you and he says, you will not die forever. You may die in human form. The Bible says from the dust of the earth you came to the dust you will return, okay? But there is another life. There is something else. There is something else that is working and God says, you may die that one, but you will not die the eternal death. This morning, if maybe you feel like you have been out of sync with God. This morning, I know that there are some of you in here that the Holy Spirit is just impressing upon you and just saying, man, you, it's okay. Look, I'm not mad at you. 
But maybe you just know in your heart that you've just been pulling away from God and maybe you don't know why. Maybe the things that we say on this pulpit have stopped making any sense to you and maybe we're not being relevant, but I know that in your heart, the Holy Spirit is maybe working on some of you here this morning where you're just like, God, I want that life. I want, to, I want to be able to trust you. I want to be able to give myself fully to you. I want to live this life that you're calling me to live because there is something missing inside my heart this morning and I need some more of who you are. If that's you, I'm not going to ask you to come up here because I know that's really uncomfortable and some of you are going to feel guilty that you can't come up here. If that's you this morning though, where you know that there is just something that's been missing and, and you know that it's just Jesus pulling at the strings of your heart and he's just saying, listen, man, I want to give this to you, but you have to want to take it. If that's you, but maybe you've done some stuff in the past where you're just not proud of it. If that's you, but maybe you've done stuff in your past that people keep bringing up to you. And so you realize, I want this and I want salvation, but I've done too many bad things. Guess what? That's why Jesus dies. That's why Jesus gives up his life so that the past that you have lived, the mistakes, the guilt, the people you have hurt, the things you have done wrong, Jesus lays down his life so that you could lay those things down. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That is the most important message that we must preach to the whole world, that Jesus is giving you access to life, not just in this time, but life everlasting. If you're one of those people and you're sitting next to somebody, just hold somebody's hand right now. Just open up your heart, and I, I just want to pray a prayer of blessing over you. And if you're feeling that way after church, just get a pen, write down your name and your number and just give it to me and I'll know what that means and, and I'll make sure that we, we get in contact with each other this week and we do the very best that we can to lead you into this relationship with Jesus because we know once you do, nothing will ever be the same. If that's you, just slip that to me and we'll, and we'll, we'll start talking. Pray with me. God, this morning your spirit was surely felt in this place. But it's not because of the preacher, but it's because your spirit will stop at nothing we know to reach into our hearts, our minds, and our souls. God, as we learn to continue to give ourselves to you and entrust ourselves to you, I pray that when it's difficult, that when other things get in the way of us just giving ourselves to you, God, I pray that you would take those things away. And for those who are kind of opening up their hearts to you for the first time, Lord, for those who maybe are just beginning to ask a question of, well, what is, what is this really about God? I pray that your spirit would fill them in such a way that they would get a glimpse of what you're trying to give them. And for those of us who have been at this for many years, even our whole lives, may you refocus our attention, our desires, our passions, our will on who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your atoning sacrifice on the cross. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.